everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Abnormal Psychologist podcast. Um, this is your host, Dr. Colby Taylor. I'm an associate professor of behavioral sciences at Christian Brothers University in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, we're currently out of, uh, of class due to an ice storm, um, so we're going on day two of no class, which means I get to record an episode. Um, I'm also a licensed psychologist in the state of Tennessee. And uh, as I mentioned, um, we're out of school for an ice storm. And um, that means my kids are out of school too, and they're down for a nap right now. And since they're napping, I thought, why not do an episode on sleep? Um, I actually got a mailbag request a few weeks ago from Kristen. Uh, Kristen says, hello, Dr. Taylor. My name is Kristen. Um, I'm an undergrad student studying psychology at BYU. First of all, I'd like to express my appreciation for your podcast. I love the way you present the information. Thank you, Kristen. Um, It's a lot of fun to listen to, and I've really enjoyed listening to it. However, I will admit that while I only found the podcast a few weeks ago, I was severely disappointed when I got to episode 17 and realized that none of your episodes covered sleep. I was actually so disappointed that I stopped listening for three weeks. Um, However, I'm caught up now, and since there isn't anything about sleep in your podcast so far, I thought I would request that you make at least one episode about it. Um, There are a lot of sleep-related disorders in the DSM-5, and sleep abnormalities can also be symptoms of other disorders, such as depression. When sleep gets messed up, things get really, really wacky fast, and it's absolutely fascinating to learn about. If you want to read up on sleep disorders, I highly recommend Henry Nichols' book, Sleepyhead. Um, And if you want an in-depth look at specific disorders, um, the classic Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker. Sleep disorders and their nearly ubiquitous uh, cousin, sleep deprivation, are actually a lot more prevalent than you think. Um, uh, And uh, she included a, a, a paper Um, that she wrote for a class and said, it would make my day and potentially help other people's nights if you would do an episode on sleep. Thank you, Kristen, because I actually can't believe that I haven't done an episode on sleep-related stuff thus far. Um, There's a section in the DSM-5, as you mentioned in your letter, on sleep-wake disorders. So we have diagnoses, and I'll discuss those later in this podcast, specifically related to sleeping and waking. You could take an entire undergraduate or graduate level course on sleep. Uh, So there's multiple episodes I could do on sleep-related topics. I thought today I would try not to get overly ambitious. Uh, We'd cover sleep-wake disorders, um, sort of the importance of sleep. And then maybe in future episodes, I could do deep dives into more sleep-related things. Um, obviously, sleep is a super important topic. We all do it. In fact, we, we, we die without sleep, right? Obviously, I'm a huge nerd. You know that this far. And um, when I was a child, one of my big interests was uh, I'd always buy a new copy of the Guinness Book of World Records. We'd have a book fair. Uh, I got so excited the other day because my, my three-year-old Emerson, her school sent home a scholastic a book order form. And uh, anytime these order forms would come out, I'd buy the newest edition of the Guinness Book of World Records. And so I was interested in like the longest period of time anybody's gone without sleep. And that record is held by Rudy Gardner. Uh, he was 17 years old at the time he broke the record, which was back in 1946. And he stayed awake for over 11 days straight. Um, Gardner's record is fascinating. Um, he actually played pinball against the researchers during the streak. And it's a record that won't be broken. Um, it can never be broken because the Guinness Book of World Records said that they're not going to keep track of like uh, sleep deprivation related records because it's so dangerous and they don't want to encourage people to you know stay up for days on end. 
Geez, sleep is so it's so important. It's so fascinating. Um, in Kristen's uh, paper that she shared with me in her mailbag request, she mentioned she cites the CDC that a third of Americans don't get the recommended amount of sleep, and that number rises right for certain points in development. If we're talking about uh, children or adolescents, there's so many kids and adolescents that aren't getting the recommended amount of sleep because Americans struggle with sleep. Um, melatonin is commonly taken. Um, almost one in 10 Americans take some sort of sleep aid. Um, and I was reading a story the other day that was talking about melatonin. And on average, melatonin um, gives you about seven extra minutes of sleep per night. And you can get melatonin over the counter. Um, there's no, I guess, super recommended dosage. I think my wife takes about three milligrams per night. Um, but I've seen people taking as many as 10 milligrams per night and, um, and some autism research. There's a linkage between melatonin and autism. There have been a few studies that have found lower levels of melatonin in people on the spectrum. And then there's been sort of another vein of research that's looked at um, using uh, exogenous melatonin, um, some sort of melatonin supplement, to treat symptoms of autism spectrum disorder. And in some of the meta-analyses that I was looking at, um, I found dosages to treat autism using exogenous melatonin ranging up to 25 milligrams per night, which is crazy. All this to say, lots of Americans take melatonin. Um, it's not super well-regulated because it's over-the-counter, and you'll see a wide range of dosage. Um, two milligrams, three milligrams, I think is typical. 10 milligrams is not uncommon, and apparently you can go all the way up to 25 milligrams. Kristen mentioned in her mailbag request that she's fascinated by sleep, and I'm fascinated by sleep. Uh, I'm not a specialist in sleep by any stretch of the imagination. Um, there are psychologists that specialize in sleep-related stuff. They're called sleep psychologists who specialize in sleep psychology. Um, that's not necessarily my thing, but I've, I've always been sort of baffled by, you know, as common as sleep is, again, everybody does it. Um, we spend a huge amount of our time, our lifespan, right, sleeping, uh, almost half of our life sleeping, um, shouldn't we know more about sleeping? Um, it seems like a, a way to sort of maybe uh, stump a psychologist or make a psychologist, if you have psychology professors out there, um, ask them about sleep. Um, they'll probably give you some sort of scholarly answer uh, on sleep involves, you know, so many brain regions, right? It's, it's neurologically diverse. Um, and they'll read off two different brain regions that are involved in sleep. And we know sort of the mechanisms of sleep, um, but it's still kind of uh, a great unknown um, in neurology and in psychology. Um, again, sleep involves a lot of brain regions. It's sort of symphonic if you think about it. Uh, these brain regions have to sort of play in symphony for us to get uh, restful, healthy sleep. Um, I already talked about melatonin. Uh, melatonin we can produce endogenously um, through the pineal gland. Um, and I think I talked about the pineal gland um, maybe in an earlier episode, uh, it's interesting that Rene Descartes, right, the, the French philosopher uh, who said, I think, therefore I am, um, he noticed when he was uh, doing um, uh, brain dissections, the brain exhibits bilateral symmetry except for uh, the pineal gland pretty much. Um, uh, and he thought since, you know, the pineal gland uh, sort of disrupts the bilateral symmetry of the brain, it obviously must be our um, sort of metaphysical third eye. 
Um, I don't know about it being, you know, spiritual in our third eye, but I do know that melatonin is produced in the pineal gland. Um, in addition to the pineal gland, right, we, we have the hypothalamus that's involved. Um, in a certain region of the hypothalamus, the uh, suprachiasmatic nucleus, um, you'll see it abbreviated SCN if you get into neuroscience uh, literature. The SCN is super involved. Um, our brainstem is involved. Um, and within our brainstem, right, we have like the locus ceruleus, which means blue spot. Um, and the locus ceruleus is fascinating in that it's implicated in like schizophrenia, um, dementia, um, and also possibly autism. Uh, again, we're getting that sort of link between psychopathology and sleep. Uh, the locus ceruleus is, is part of the pons. Um, etymologically, word nerd here, right? Uh, pons means uh, bridge, sort of like the Pont Neuf in France or the Ponte Vecchio in, in Florence. Uh, the pons is part of the um, brainstem, and it's in front of the cerebellum um, and above the medulla oblongata. Uh, so I'm going to, I'm going to work in a couple of pop culture movie references here. Uh, medulla oblongata. I always think about the scene from Waterboy with Adam Sandler, um, where he gets into the fight with the, the professor uh, and talks about, you know, an alligator's medulla oblongata, um, classic. Uh, also the front of our brain is involved in sleep and the middle of our brain is involved in sleep. Our, our, our amygdala is very involved in sleep with the amygdala. It's important to, to REM sleep, to rapid eye movement sleep. We'll talk about that in a little bit when we talk about sleep disorders. Before I broach the topic of sleep-wake disorders specifically, um, I want to touch on that a lot of different psychopathologies involve sleep. Um, Kristen mentioned this in her mailbag email. Uh, we have bipolar 1 disorder, right? We oftentimes see sleep disturbances, uh, especially in the manic phase of bipolar disorder, uh, where people might stay awake for 72 hours or so on end. And then in the depressive phase of bipolar disorder, people might experience hypersomnia. Hypersomnia is where people sleep too much, and we'll have a corresponding sleep-wake diagnosis um, related to hypersomnia in a little bit. Uh, but hypersomnia is commonly associated with depression. Um, with depression, it's interesting that we can get sort of inverse sleeping. We have some people that, that sleep too much, the hypersomnia piece, and then we have some people that can't sleep at all with their depression, uh, which would be insomnia or hyposomnia. And then, obviously, if you're not sleeping enough or not sleeping at all, that can make you even more depressed. We can get this sort of positive feedback loop um, with depression and sleep. Um, sleep's also linked to anxiety. And if you'll remember back to my anxiety episode way back in season one, I talked about GABA as a neurotransmitter that's associated with anxiety and that some um, psychiatrists and physicians will uh, prescribe something like gabapentin off-label um, to treat anxiety disorders. Um, GABA is involved in sleep. Um, GABA is produced in the hypothalamus and in the brainstem. And there's some research indicating that GABA supplements can help aid in sleep. Um, we know substance use disorders are tied into um, sleep disorders. Um, ADHD, uh, schizophrenia. Uh, with ADHD, I've seen some research um, suggesting that melatonin supplements might help um, alleviate some of the impulsivity inattention and hyperactivity we see with ADHD. Anyways, all this to say, you would be hard-pressed to find a disorder in the DSM-5 text revision that doesn't involve sleep in some way. So speaking of the DSM-5 text revision, uh, we do have a section of sleep-wake disorders. 
Um, these are going to include, and I'll go more specifically into these in a little bit, uh, but insomnia disorder, hypersomnolence disorder, narcolepsy, breathing-related sleep disorders, parasomnias, and parasomnias are going to be divided into like non-REM sleep uh, arousal disorders, um, and then REM sleep behavior disorders. Um, so we'll make the distinction between non-REM sleep and REM sleep when we start talking about parasomnias. Parasomnias just means around sleep. I didn't have very much exposure to sleep-related stuff in grad school um, at all. You know, I read about CBT, um, uh, and there's a lot of people that practice CBT for like sleep hygiene or to treat insomnia. And you can probably uh, get on Google and look up therapists around you um, who treat sort of sleep-related difficulties, and you'll find social workers, counselors, and psychologists. Um, so there is training out there uh, to use psychological therapy, uh, CBT especially, um, in, in treating sleep disorders, uh, especially insomnia. Um, but oftentimes I think that sleep is more the realm of medicine. Again, we get these interesting turf battles in mental health where certain things like dementia and uh, Alzheimer's, um, Tourette syndrome are considered more like neurologically focused, whereas other disorders, you know, anxiety, depression, what have you, are considered more the turf of psychology. And sleep's one of those that a lot of times I think neurologists and physicians might have a better hold on sleep-related things than psychologists do. Um, in fact, you know, I mentioned those diagnoses and we'll delve into them more specifically in a little bit that are in the DSM-5 text revision. But there's another nosology that's out there outside of the DSM-5 that might even be more appropriate for sleep-related stuff. Nosology, if we remember back again to season one, a nosology is sort of the classification of diseases. Um, in psychology and psychiatry, we use the DSM-5, DSM-5 text revision now. Um, I was watching, again, we're having this ice storm now and I'm on sort of dad duty. I was watching Doc McStuffins earlier. And I was surprised that the cartoon character Doc McStuffins has her own sort of nosology she works on or works out of. Um, it's called the Big Book of Boo-Boos. Um, and so the nosology out there for sleep-related stuff is the International Classification of Sleep Disorders, third edition. So you'll see this abbreviated ICSD-3, which since it's dedicated entirely to sleep disorders, it's probably more comprehensive and more appropriate than the DSM-5 text revision. The ICSD-3 is published by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Again, getting outside of the realm of psychology or psychiatry and into sleep medicine. But we're in the realm of psychology right now, and so let's go through DSM-5 text revision sleep-wake disorders. And we'll start with insomnia disorder. Um, in the DSM-5-TR, you're going to see the diagnostic code G47.00. And you might be wondering why the alphanumeric G code, right? We don't usually have uh, G when we're talking about mental disorders. Trivia question, what do we usually have letter-wise um, when we're talking about mental disorders? I should cue up the Jeopardy music here. Um, and one of the great things about being home during this ice storm is that I get to watch Jeopardy. Memphis is a market where Jeopardy is not shown at night. Um, it's shown in the afternoon and I'm usually working, um, but since I've been off the last few days, I've been able to watch Jeopardy. Um, anyways, in the, the DSM-5 text revision, or this is based on the ICD-10 and 11, uh, we use F codes for mental health related diagnoses. F codes 
are used for mental, behavioral, and neurodevelopmental disorders. And you'll notice the G code with insomnia disorder, G codes are for nervous system related disorders, which again, this highlights a sort of weird turf battle in mental health. The nervous system is tied into everything that we do um, in psychology or psychiatry, but somehow it's separated out um, from mental, behavioral, and neurodevelopmental disorders. F code, G code, I guess they're next to each other in the alphabet. Um, all right, insomnia disorder. Uh, with insomnia, we're talking about sleep-related difficulties um, in three aspects. The first would be falling asleep, initiating sleep. And in kids, this might be difficulty falling asleep without a parent present, without a parent sort of rocking them to sleep or laying with them until they go to sleep, that sort of thing. So the first phase of sleep, initiating sleep. Um, the second aspect we look at is difficulty maintaining sleep. Um, you might have like frequent awakenings or you might wake up and have some trouble falling back asleep. Um, and then the third aspect we look at is waking up too early, um, especially early morning awakenings without being able to go back to sleep. You wake up at four or five in the morning. You're supposed to be waking up at seven or eight in the morning or something like that. And you can't get back to sleep. And you have to have these sleep difficulties for at least three nights per week for at least three months. So we have double threes there. Uh, three nights per week for at least three months. And it's not better explained by um, a substance use disorder or another medical condition or psychological or psychiatric condition. When we talk about difficulties falling asleep, you'll see that called sleep onset or initial insomnia. We're talking about difficulties staying asleep during that middle part of sleep. You'll see it called sleep maintenance or middle insomnia. And that middle insomnia is actually the most common type of insomnia. And then if we're talking early awakenings, sometimes you'll see that referred to as late insomnia. Again, I didn't have terribly much instruction on sleep-related stuff when I was in graduate school, but I did take a CBT class. And in this CBT class, um, we learned about sort of CBT related to insomnia. And I'll read to you some sleep hygiene instructions from my textbook, uh, which was O'Donohue and Fisher. It was published in 2008. And so these sleep hygiene instructions are sleep only as much as you need to feel refreshed during the following day. Uh, get up at the same time every day, seven days a week, exercise regularly, make sure your bedroom's comfortable, free from light and noise. You don't want it to be too hot or too cool. I think people generally sleep better when it's on the cooler side. Um, eat regular meals. Don't go to bed hungry. Um, avoid excessive liquids in the evening because you'd have to get up and pee during the middle of the night. Cut down on caffeine products in the afternoon and evening especially. Um, avoid alcohol. Um, nicotine use smoking um, around sleep. That might disturb sleep. Um, don't take your problems to bed. We know with initial insomnia, that first phase of insomnia, rumination, thinking about you know bad things, um, having anxiety before sleep, uh, really contributes to that initial insomnia. Um, train yourself to use the bedroom only for sleeping or for sexual activity. Uh, don't go lay in bed and watch TV for two hours. Don't read in bed. Don't scroll on Instagram or TikTok for an hour uh, before bedtime. Um, just go to bed for sleep. Um, also, don't try to fall asleep. We know paradoxically, right, the more you try to force sleep to fall asleep, the less likely you are to actually fall asleep. Um, 
put a clock under the bed and turn it off so you can't see it. Um, sometimes having a clock, if you get into sleep-related literature, you'll see the German term Zeitgeber, um, uh, which relates to being able to see things uh, that give you the time when you're asleep, whether it's light outside or something like an alarm clock. Um, and then avoid naps. Um, we know napping can really throw off your night sleep. It reminds me of my kids taking a nap right now and looking at the baby monitor. My three-and-a-half-year-old still has not fallen asleep. Um, my one-and-a-half-year-old looks like he's sleeping super soundly. So that's insomnia. Um, another diagnosis we have in the DSM-5, G47.10. Another G code is hypersomnolence disorder. Hyper meaning too much sleep. And this is self-reported sleepiness despite... Um, uh, getting at least seven hours of sleep per night. And with hypersomnolence, we also have that 3-3 three, three deal at least three times per week for at least three months. And it's not attributable to physiological effects of a substance. With hypersomnolence, you might wake up groggy, which you'll hear called sleep inertia. You know, it's hard to sort of jumpstart yourself out of sleep. You might spend the first hour or so awake essentially like half asleep. Uh, we do want to rule out behaviorally induced insufficient sleep syndrome, which is a relatively new term, B-I-I-S-S. -S. Um, you can Google this. Uh, this comes up, especially in like college students and young people, um, where they might sleep too much on the weekends or have like vacation or some sort of event that really throws off their sleep schedule. Um, also, your work schedule can throw off your sleep schedule. And because you're not hitting sort of that consistent, again, going back to our sleep hygiene guidelines, you want about the same bedtime and awakening time um, every night per week. And we know with especially like college students, their weekend <laughs> sleep times are way off, um, uh, way out of line from like their sleep during the work week. Um, that could fall under behaviorally induced insufficient sleep syndrome. Um, in extreme cases of hypersomnolence, um, some people can sleep for over 20 hours, um, which is crazy to me. Uh, again, when I think about hypersomnolence, I'm thinking, you know, uh, high schoolers, college students, and the mean age of onset of hypersomnolence will be between 17 and 24 years of age. And this is not surprising to me because one of the chief presenting complaints we get at campus health centers um, is that people, college students, lack energy. They come in, they say, you know, I'm strung out, I'm sleepy all the time, I lack energy. A lot of times they'll be sort of, and this was me when I was a college student, they would always test me for like mononucleosis, see if I have mono, they'd check my iron levels, see if I have anemia, and they would rule out any sort of, um, not any sort of, but your main physical causes of hypersomnolence when you're 17, 24 years old. So not uncommon at all for that age range. I was reading a study of like Norwegian youth. I think it was Norwegian youth and prepping for this episode. And uh, it was like over 40% of Norwegian youth um, expressed some sort of hyper level of hypersomnolence. All right, let's move on with our diagnoses. So we have non-rapid eye movement sleep disorders in the DSM-5. And geez, with this episode, I don't even have time to get into like stages of sleep and brain waves during sleep. With non-REM sleep, uh, we're generally talking 
about the first third of a sleep episode. Um, and when you have a non-REM sleep disorder, uh, oftentimes um, we're talking about sleepwalking or sleep terrors. Um, usually with non-REM sleep um, there's amnesia for the episode. So if you're sleepwalking or if you're experiencing a sleep terror, you wake up and you have no idea what happened. Somebody else is, has been watching you and they've noticed that you're, you know, you're sleepwalking. My dad actually was a sleepwalker um, when he was uh, a, an adolescent. And I remember or I've heard about a neighbor finding him several blocks away from his childhood home uh, riding a bicycle because you can do really complex things when you're sleepwalking or sleep bike riding and he had his uh, pillow tucked under his arm and he was just riding his bicycle asleep in the middle of the night in the neighborhood um, had no idea how he got there amnesia is oftentimes present um, it can cause significant distress or impairment it can be dangerous um, you're not tweaking on some sort of substance and if you are dreaming like you're experiencing a sleep terror um, there's no dream imagery that's oftentimes recalled um, somebody might be witnessing you asleep and you seem terrified. You're giving off physiological signs of anxiety. Your heart might be racing. You might be hyperventilating during sleep. Um, they wake up and they have no idea what they were dreaming about. They're like, man, you, you just woke up. You know, somebody's waking you up. What, what were you dreaming about? It sounded terrifying. And you're like, I wasn't dreaming. I have no idea what I was dreaming um, about. That would be sleep terror. Um, with sleepwalking type, um, we also have sleep-related eating. Uh, some people are sometimes found raiding the refrigerator in the middle of the night, and somebody will wake them up, and they have no idea how they got there. Um, and we also have sexomnia. Uh, sexomnia is sleep-related sexual behavior. Um, and this could obviously get you in trouble, but some people in non-REM sleep um, will engage in unknowingly in sexual activities, um, which you'll hear called sexomnia. For legally minded folks out there, I don't think the sexomnia defense, there's been legal cases where people have claimed sexomnia, um, has worked out very well. doesn't seem like a hugely successful um, defense. Um, speaking of hugely non-rapid eye movement sleep arousal disorders are hugely genetic, like over 80% genetic. Um, it's interesting. My father had one, I guess. I, I didn't have one that I know about. Um, and with sleep terrors or night terrors, I see this all the time sort of in my clinic. And it's not something I treat, but people report when I'm doing a, a developmental history or background information section, um, I'm always asking parents or children or adolescents if they're old enough about sleep habits. Sleep terrors, night terrors um, occur early in childhood, um, especially in toddlerhood. The peak incidence of um, sleep terrors uh, is a year and a half at 18 months. Uh, again, there's physiological signs of anxiety, rapid heartbeat, um, which you don't tend to have rapid heartbeat when you're having a normal nightmare, interestingly enough. Normal nightmares, even if they're terrifying, don't tend to sort of elevate your heart rate. Um, sleep terrors tend to occur in the first third of sleep, um, whereas nightmares occur in the last third of sleep, right before you're waking up. Uh, when there are sleep terrors or night terrors, I do usually screen for PTSD and screen for abuse. Um, sleep terrors are more common in boys than in girls. Uh, but once we get to adulthood, 
which again, I usually, sleep terrors are by far more common in younger children than they are in adults. But if they're persisting into adulthood, there is no sex difference in adults. But oftentimes we do see comorbidity with like major depressive disorder and sleep terrors in adults. All right, let's progress to another parasomnia, but one that's non-REM in nature. And that's nightmare disorder. <laughs> nightmare disorder, for whatever reason, we're getting back into the F codes, away from the G codes. F51.5. Again, nightmares are more likely to occur before awakening in that last third of sleep. And here, a lot of times you vividly remember. These are well-remembered dreams um, where you uh, thought your safety was threatened. Um, and oftentimes these dreams can be repetitive. Uh, we'll hear these sort of nightmare dreams called dysphoric dreams or dysphoric in nature. They're disturbing. Um, it's not due to like alcohol use or nicotine use or something like that. We want to rule out that there's some substance that could be um, contributing to these nightmares. As I mentioned, different than sleep terror. Sleep terrors, again, toddlerhood is your peak. Nightmare disorder, your peak is going to be between 10 and 13 in males. Um, and then in females, this will continue to sort of increase in peak up until your early to mid-20s. Um, we will see bad dream themes um, that occur after a traumatic event. So these, uh, these are called replicative nightmares. And replicative nightmares, you know, you might have experienced a car accident or something like that in real life. And then you have this sort of repetitive dream theme involving automobiles or car accidents. So it's a replicative nightmare. And so nightmare disorders can co-occur with PTSD. And just like with sleep terrors, I do want to screen for trauma um, when nightmare disorder is a possibility. We also have rapid eye movement sleep-related disorders. So we covered non-REM sleep disorders before nightmare disorder we just talked about. We're getting back into the realm of G-codes again. So we're bouncing around between F and G. G47.52. Um, REM sleep usually occurs over 90 minutes after sleep onset. So this is going to be later in the sleep period. Um, and it's going to uncommonly occur during daytime naps. Um, we're usually not getting to REM sleep when we're napping during the daytime. Uh, when you awake from a REM sleep disorder, you're completely awake, alert, and you're not confused and disoriented at all. With a non-REM disorder, like when we're talking about sleep terrors or sleepwalking, uh, usually wake up and you're really confused because you have no idea what you're doing and how you got there. Um, we can diagnose... Those are some like quick and easy ways we can differentiate between REM sleep disorders and non-REM sleep disorders. Uh, but usually we'd refer on for polysomnography. Um, and so looking at sleep waves uh, and whether there's like atonia that's happening or not, um, we can determine more precisely if it's a REM sleep disorder or non-REM sleep disorder. With REM sleep disorders, uh, patients might scream at their partners. Um, this can be very scary for the partner of somebody with a REM sleep disorder. Um, I unknowingly roomed with somebody in, uh, in college that had a REM sleep disorder and it scared the you know what out of me the first time they started like shouting in their sleep. So the most common symptom is sleep talking or sleep screaming, vocalizations during sleep. Uh, we tend to see this affect men, especially men over the age of 50. Um, and interestingly, with REM sleep behavior disorder, sometimes we'll see um, dream enacting behavior. So you're acting out the dreams, you're punching, you're running, 
you're hitting, you're kicking, um, which can actually result in injury to yourself or your partners. Uh, and also while you're enacting the dreams, your eyes are usually cl uh, closed. And I already work in a Waterboy reference, uh, big Adam Sandler fan, uh, but also a huge Step Brothers fan. And uh, in the movie Step Brothers, uh, obviously not like a super uh, highbrow movie. Um, Rotten Tomatoes gives it, I think, an unfair low percentage because I don't think I can watch Step Brothers without like crying laughing. But it reminds me of the scene from Step Brothers where they're doing all that stuff in their sleep in the kitchen and just making a wreck out of the house. Um, anyways, wow, we're this is one of the longest episodes I've done so far. We're over 30 minutes. Um, so I, I could dedicate other episodes to sleep if, if people... Um, have requests on sleep-related stuff. I'm I, again. I'm. It's not my specialty, but I'm fascinated by sleep. Um, email me at ctaylo41 at cbu.edu and put in the subject line mailbag. Um, we do have another mailbag request, and this is from Mallory. Mallory and Mallory says, "Hi, my name is Mallory. I'm a pretty new listener to your podcast. My first degree is in neuroscience. So you probably know way more about sleep than I do. And my second is in education, so I'm very into your material. I was really excited for your episode on parentification, and I enjoyed it a lot. Um, besides being a product of emotional parentification myself, um, I work in a large public school system with lots of parentified children." Um, I was hoping you could go into more detail about the impact of emotional parentification on children, especially eldest daughters. I'm thinking along the lines of self-worth, being tied to usefulness uh, to others, and struggling to draw boundaries, for example. Uh, and then she mentions the Disney movie Encanto and talks about the song Surface Pressure, which is a banger. Surface Pressure, when you have little kids, uh, absolute banger. Um, she said it pretty much sums me up um, and made me sob for hours. Um, thanks for all your podcast, Mallory. And so I could go more into parentification. I don't know if there's much research out there on parentification with oldest daughters, especially, uh, but it's something I could look into. Uh, but I was recently watching Encanto with my kids and I was thinking I could probably dedicate an entire episode to like psychological or psychopathological themes in Encanto. I could really probably do an entire like podcast series on Disney movies. Uh, but maybe in the, the future, um, I will do an Encanto um, dedicated episode. Uh, but I'm out of time for this episode. Uh, I think I'm going to go ahead and get my three-and-a-half-year-old up because she never took a nap. I'm looking at the baby monitor. Year-and-a-half-year-old is still out, um, so I've still got some time to relax on that front. Um, until the next episode, which might be coming quickly if uh, the ice storm continues. Hey, I've got a lot of time on my hand and I have some other episode topics I want to talk about. So until next time, stay warm and stay well.